Good morning again. I'm sorry you have to see so much of me up here this morning. Brother Rob and the whole Gleason family is uh, welcoming the birth of a new granddaughter. And so they are away and um, I'm pulling double duty here this morning. Uh, you got the second string worship leading and and Brother Aaron's away. So you got the second string preaching as well. What a good thing, though, to be here this morning in the Lord's house, house with the Lord's people. It's been a great morning already. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer as we come to the word. Father, we are so blessed and so gracious to be able to gather as a family, to be able to come freely and come comfortably, air conditioning, padded seats. Uh, uh, we take so many things for granted, freedom. Yet here we are. What a joy it is to be with the brothers and sisters and to sing together to your name, to honor you, to celebrate the communion, to remember that you have blessed us with every spiritual gift in the heavenly realms and you have brought us into your family. And uh, so what a joy it is. I pray that this morning that you will accomplish your purpose in gathering us here, that the name of Jesus would be honored and exalted, that you would be worshipped, that our hearts would be touched, that uh, we would be encouraged by being together as the body, encouraged to love and good deeds, that we would be deepened in our love for you and grow in our knowledge of you, and that we would draw near to you. We thank you for your word, your living and active and powerful word as we open it this morning. We ask that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us through your word, that we might know you deeper, that we might know you more fully, more intimately. So, Lord, we commit ourselves right now in these moments to listen as you speak. May you move the speaker out of the way, Father, that you would speak clearly through your word. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians and chapter 4 this morning. I'm not sure when it all began exactly, but I believe it was back in the late 1970s with Bob Villa. And many of you remember his PBS TV show, This Old House. From those days, if not from this show, arose a whole genre of TV shows, all focused on remodeling, rehabbing, redecorating, refurbishing, renewing old, ugly, whatever houses. Shows like Fixer Up It, Love It or List It, uh, Design of the Dime, Property Brothers, uh, Hometown. Uh, any of you guys watch any of those shows? First Service had a lot more. Maybe you guys are just hesitant to raise your hand in church because somebody will probably volunteer you for something. Or the pastor will use you as a sermon illustration. <laughs> no, the, the reality is most of us, uh, a lot of us anyway, like these shows. We really enjoy we find it entertaining and inspiring when we see what people do with this, you know, this small, little, beat-up, run-down place, and they transform it, and maybe it inspires us to do something. We think about, wow, what could we do to improve our own home? 
But far more important than looking at and examining and considering the houses we live in is to consider the relationships among the people who live in those houses. Most of us have heard the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. (laughs) Now, of course, most of us have also lived long enough to know that that works for daddy too. And even junior tyrant, (laughs) who will make sure if he's not happy, nobody else is happy either. The reality is that bad attitudes, foul relationships at home can turn even the most lavish of mansions into a miserable prison. That reality caused the world's richest man ever to write these words. His name, of course, was Solomon. Solomon said, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The guy who had everything said, I'd rather have a dry crust of bread in a bare room than to have all my stuff and a house full of strife. And from what we read of Solomon in his life, he probably had a house full of strife all the time. He also wrote over in Proverbs 19, verse 3, he said, A foolish son is his father's ruin. In other words, a foolish child can destroy your life and destroy your happiness as a parent. He continues in that verse, and a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. I'm sure that wives could say some similar things about husbands. Again, the reality is bad attitudes... And a bad relationship can suck all the life and suck all the joy out of a home. Many of you have understood that from personal experience. Just like none of us really wants to live in an ugly, run-down, beat-up, dirty, little, decrepit shack, I don't imagine there are any of us who want to live in a home with bad relationships. One of my dear brothers and friends, some of you as well, hold him dear, uh, Dave Richter, used to often say, you've got problems in your house? Well, you put two sinners under one roof and what do you expect? See, the reality is that sin, that little three-letter word, is ultimately at the root of all the problems in our homes and in our relationships. And therefore, the solution to improving our relationships, the solution to improving our homes, is aligning our own heart, our own attitudes, our own wills, our own actions, and our own lives, aligning them as closely as we can to what God says. For sin, you see, is 
rebelling against what God says. It's disobeying what God says. It's ignoring what God says. It is, as Romans 3.23 says, falling short of what God says and requires. That is our focus today and over the next four weeks after today. We're going to dig here into Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. Reminding ourselves of what it is that God says about relationships. What He says about homes. And calling us to put these things into practice in our lives and our relationships and our homes. You know, when you're renovating a house, before you get into the, the good stuff, before you get into the fun stuff, which is, by the way, you know, putting the paint on the wall, which is putting the flooring down, which is putting the cabinets up and getting the decorations in place. That's the fun stuff, because that's when you look at it and you go, whoo, I like that. Oh, that's nice. But before you get there, you see, there's a lot of work to be done. Before you get there, you have to look at the bones. You have to look at the drywall. You've got to look at the studs behind the drywall. You've got to deal with the, the subfloors. You have to deal with the foundations. And you have to deal with any problems that are there because if the problems that are there are not dealt with, no matter how much paint you put on and how much flooring you put on top and how many decorations you put up, you've still got big issues in your home, right? And so before we get to... The things that this book, this letter to the Ephesians has to say about our homes, specifically about our relationships with wives and husbands and children and parents. Before we get there, we have to look back at the foundations and check out the foundations. You see, this book, before it addresses, and it does address wives and husbands and children and parents, but before it does that, it addresses relationships in general. And I have often said that these chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, I think comprise the greatest manual on relationships ever written. And so while we will get to the section on marriage and family, and it is, by the way, I think is as well the most extensive treatment of marriage and family in the Scripture we want to back up here to where we are this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, just in case the prospect of improving your relationships doesn't interest you at all, and right now you're thinking as soon as you've heard what we're talking about, you've already started tuning out, shutting down, changing the channel, looking to see what you can browse on your phone. Before you tune out, Maybe it's, by the way, because you're just a man. And, you know, in the old stereotypical, <laughs> you know, man, we don't deal with relationship stuff. You've got to understand that this matters. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, as he writes these chapters, we will find that here in chapter 4 and again in chapter 5, as we this week and next week look at the foundations of relationships, 
Four times in these two chapters, we'll see two today and two next week, the Apostle Paul takes the time to express why what we are looking at matters. Relationships matter. We find the first reason why relationships matter and why what we're doing here is significant and important and deserving of our time this month, right in verse 1, the first of these reasons. Look there, follow along. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The first reason he gives us here why this is important, he says, live up to your calling. And we might ask the question, well, uh, what is our calling? Well, you'll notice it says, therefore, right there at the beginning of that. And it, what that does is send us back to the rest, to the beginning of the book to find out what this therefore is there for. And it has everything to do with the whole first three chapters. In the first three chapters of this book, this letter is describing for us a new identity which God has given to us. He describes a marvelous identity that we receive from God. If we could go back, we'll discover that, for example, that we are loved by God, that we have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world, that we have been redeemed by God's grace through the blood of Jesus Christ as we celebrated and remembered at the communion this morning. We've been born again into new life. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have been adopted into God's family. We are destined for heaven. And that's just a sampling of what's there. We have a marvelous identity in Christ. This passage goes on in verse 4 to remind us that we have been placed, as a look there in verse 4, into the body of Christ. There is one body, it says, and one spirit. And he goes on, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We've been placed in the body of Christ, united into this body of Christ. And as members of the body, we have a purpose. Our calling, you see, that he's talking about here, part of our calling is the identity. We have been called to this wonderful identity in Christ. But this wonderful identity in Christ also has a purpose. And part of our calling is our purpose. And we might ask, well, what is our purpose? He explains it. Look down in verse 15. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are to grow up as believers. We become a Christian by placing our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. We are at that time, all of those things that I mentioned earlier, those things become reality. We have this new identity. We are baby Christians and we are to grow up. We are in Christ, he says here. But how does that growth happen? Look at the second half of the next verse, verse 16. When each part of the body, that is, when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You and I need one another in the body of Christ. We need one another as the family of God, the body of Christ, because together we are built up and matured into each of us individually. We mature in Christ, but we also together corporately mature as the body of Christ. Now, so that's 
our calling is to mature. But understand, notice, how does that happen? It is as, notice what did he say, as each part is working properly. You see, my maturity, our maturity is dependent upon you. Your maturity is dependent upon us. We are to do this together. That's why relationship matters. Our maturity, our growing in Christ happens in relationship. And an interesting thing I had not really thought until this week as I was reading through this, I realized he has just in a di- he has just reframed for us the great commission. What is the great commission? Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The mission that Jesus Christ left us to do is to go as we are going literally. We are to be sharing the gospel so that people come to faith in Christ and we are to disciple them, to grow them, to mature them. He says by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them. The mission that we have as individuals and as the church is to make disciples. And the way that that happens, Paul is reminding us here, it happens in relationship. So why do relationships matter? Because it's connected to the mission. And so in that context, relationships matter. Are you in your relationships, in your home, in your relationships here in the church, in your relationships out there, are you drawing people to Jesus and to growing in Him, or are you pushing people away? And in that context, this passage now gives us four qualities which should characterize our relationships with others. Look at verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Four qualities right there that you and I need to possess and you and I need to express and we need to live out, to flesh out in our mission of maturing and leading others to mature in Christ. The first of these, he says, is to be humble. There's even a little checkbox so you can check. Yeah, humility. Got it. Oh, you just blew it. Get rid of pride and self-centeredness. The problem in many of our relationships is that we are focused on the wrong three people. Me, myself, and I. Rather than being focused on others, how we can serve them, how we can encourage them, how can we minister to them. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 reminds us, it instructs us, in humility consider others more important than yourselves. It's the same attitude he says there that Jesus had. And we are to exemplify that as well. Second quality he mentioned there with humility. And he said with gentleness, we are to be gentle. That means to tenderly care for others. To protect and to carefully look out so that they are not hurt, so that we don't hurt them. It's the same thing as Brother Rob probably right now, if he may be watching online, is probably holding his little granddaughter uh, because he's 
fought to, to wrench her away from the parents or, or from Barb and holding that baby. But you know how we are with babies. Aren't we so careful? Because they're so frail and so fragile and so tender. And we're so careful. Why is it when people get older? Well, yeah, whatever. And we walk over people. We walk over their feelings. We trounce on them. We really don't care what they think or how they feel. This says we should not be indifferent to the needs, to the concerns, even to the feelings of others. Carelessly treat them. Be gentle. Be patient, he says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That word patient means to be long-suffering, to suffer long. Another way to put it is that Patience is not easily upset. It's not easily angered. It's not easily flustered. It's not easily aggravated. It's not easily offended. And you need, brothers and sisters, you need patience. You need patience. If you're married, you need patience. If you have children, you need patience. If you have parents, you need patience. If you have friends, you need patience. If you have a job where you work with people, you need patience. Because people sometimes are difficult. And they are all imperfect, aren't they? Patience allows us to bear, he says. Patience bearing with them, to put up with them, to hang in there. We need patient tenacity to hang in there in marriage. We need patient tenacity to hang in there with children when you're a parent. Kids, you need patient tenacity to hang in there with your parents. They'll grow up one day. And we do this because, he says, we love them. Bearing with one another in love. Not because they've earned it, not because they deserve it, but because we have chosen to love them. Be patient, be humble, be gentle, be patient. Notice in verse 3, we get another one more. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to work hard to get along. Whether we're talking relationships at home, whether we're talking relationships here at church, whether we're talking relationships at school or at your job or wherever they are, getting along with other people takes effort. And it takes commitment don't expect it to be to just happen. How many folks just thought that day that they said, I do, and they walk out down the aisle of the church and they walk out the doors, they're stepping off into that you know, beautiful sunset and the music is playing and everything is just going to be wonderful forever after, right? And uh, that's what everybody thinks and it doesn't happen. Yeah. It requires wisdom to be tactful. It requires determination not to pick fights. We have to choose not to be crabby. We have to work not to be contentious. It's hard work to settle differences amicably. Good relationships, good marriages, none of those happen without intentional effort. Commit to it. Work at it. The context Paul's saying here is speaking to the church. It takes hard work in the church to keep peace in the church because it's filled with sinners (laughs) under one roof. 
That is one of the biggest jobs of leadership in the church is maintaining the peace, the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. We all need to work hard at that. May I say, by the way, this church has always done admirably, wonderfully. You guys understand this at church. But are we doing it at home? Well, verses 17 to 24, we find the second reason why improving our relationships is critical and vital. Notice what it says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why must you and should you work to have good relationships? Because not to do so is empty-headed. I'm just putting it bluntly. Don't be empty-headed. And where did I get that? Because he says here, don't live like an unbeliever. And what he says here is that living like an unbeliever is futile. That means it's empty. It's worthless. Why is it empty and worthless? He's not seeking to insult unbelievers here. He's speaking the reality. Notice what he says. That's true because they are darkened in their thinking. I won't read the verses, but you can I'm just summarize. They are darkened in their thinking. They're alienated from God. They have hard hearts. They're caught up in all kinds of sin. And that is the way unbelievers live. And he says, but you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know better than that. Why would you live like that? To live like that would be, would be empty-headed. Don't be empty-headed. Instead, look at verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, and create it after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, live like a believer. And I started to put that as the second point, but I thought, I'll put that, that up there and you just... Think of it in spiritual terms, and I need you to just get the idea to not live like a believer is empty-headed, because that's what Paul says. And how many of us live empty-headed much of the time? So I'm saying all this about myself. We need to live like a believer in Jesus because we are a new person. We are a child of God. All of that new identity we see in chapters 1 through 3. And with that reality in mind, our text now gives us Twelve commands for relationships. You thought that little list of four things was a lot right there. Well, we're going to triple it, quadruple it, whatever it is. I'm not math. Okay. Twelve more commands. Many of these commands are going to be what he just said. Don't be an airhead. Don't do this. Don't live like an unbeliever. Do live like this. Some of them are negative, some of them are positive. Some of these are negative, I'll phrase them as a positive. Some of them may be a positive, I'll phrase them as a negative. I really don't care. I just put them up here in ways I think they'll help you remember them. Take notes. Because you won't memorize these 12 things. Number one. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be honest. Don't lie, but speak the truth. So he may, puts it both negatively and positively. Don't lie. In our bodies, one part of our body, my hand doesn't see what it can do to deceive my eyes. It doesn't see how can it undermine my feet. 
Our hand doesn't do that. If our body started doing that, where all the parts of the body started doing things to fool and trick the other parts of the body, we'd be in a mess. We would call that sick. We would call that disabled. And that's what it is in the body of Christ or in our homes where the Bible has called us to unity as believers in the body of Christ, to unity as husbands and wives. When we start working against each other, we are disabled. We are sick. And lying, not speaking the truth, is antithetical to unity. It is destructive. So he says, speak the truth. By the way, in verse 15, we already passed it because we're not reading it all because you don't want a two-hour sermon, though I could give it if you wanted it. it. says that we are to speak the truth in love, with love. There are some people who pride themselves on speaking the truth very hurtfully. They just speak, oh, just say it the way it is. Well, we already talked about gentle. Speak the truth with love. We move on. He says, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. While all anger is not sin, we read in the Bible, sometimes God is angry. Most of our anger is not righteous anger. I'd say probably 99%. (laughs) Instead, we get angry for the wrong reasons. And we get angry about the wrong things and we express our anger in the wrong ways and 99% of the time when we're angry, it's sin. Any anger can easily lead into sin and give Satan a foothold, it says here, a foothold to destroy you, to destroy your relationships. And therefore, this text calls for us to control our anger. To limit it, to control it. And don't let the sun go down on your anger, he says. In other words, forgive quickly. Keep short accounts. Don't let anger fester where it becomes bitterness and where it becomes a problem. I read about or heard about a couple who took this literally and they said, we said we'd never go to bed angry and, and so we never have. But there was that year where we never went to bed for three months. As a pastor, I have seen how how destructive anger can be in relationships. There are few things that are as difficult, few things as frustrating, few things as damaging as an angry person in the home. That can be dad or mom or kids. It's hard. Damaging, destructive. If you find yourself frequently angry, by frequently angry, I would mean angry uh, on a weekly basis, even on a daily basis, you got a problem. If your wife, if your husband, if your children, if they have to tiptoe around, as it were, around just to make sure they don't set you off, you've got a severe problem. And you are literally choking the life out of your family. I say that as gently and lovingly and firmly as I can because I've lived long enough and pastored long enough to know that that is describing some people who are listening to me today here or at home. You need 
God's help to get rid of this, to cut this out of your life. And I urge you, seek counsel. Control your anger, he says. He moves on. Verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Be productive. Be productive. You probably aren't holding up banks. You probably don't swindle people of their life savings from the Internet. I, I hope none of you are doing those types of things. You're not shoplifting at the QT, but don't take what isn't yours, even at home. You know, there's cookies there. They don't have your name on them. Maybe you should think about others before you just help yourself. That's selfishness. But there's a positive part of this command, and that is that it addresses another issue. Not only don't steal, but it addresses the issue here of laziness. Some people steal because they don't want to work. But may I say that if you are prone to sleeping in late and spending hours on video games and, and uh, hours and hours and hours watching TV or surfing the Internet or doing social media, maybe this command is for you. Our relationships with others tend to suffer when we are lazy, when we are busy indulging ourselves rather than thinking, is there something else more productive I should be doing to serve God and others? See, when we are just indulging ourselves, others end up usually having to do our part. They have to do the things that take care of us and... That easily, as they pick up the slack, can easily lead to resentment on their part. Let's help them out. God calls for you and me to be productive people, productive with our time, productive with our energies, productive with our talents. It doesn't mean you can never rest. It doesn't mean there isn't a place for leisure. What it does mean is overall we are to be productive people. We are to serve others rather than being a sponge. That's the point. Be productive. Going along with that, he says there in verse 28, that we, we work and we're productive so that we have something to share with the needy. And I put that as another thing that's important here in relationships. The reason is that while serving others helps people in need out there, how does that help our relationships at home? Well, let me add this. It, it helps others out there, meets needs. It also brings glory to God when we help others in His name. But there's another benefit. You see, when we get busy serving others, there's something that happens in us. What happens in us is when we get busy giving ourselves and serving others is that our attitudes change because we begin to see the needs and the hurts of other people rather than focusing on our own needs and our own hurts and focusing on ourselves. And our attitude changes because suddenly we realize, oh, <laughs> There are other people in the world. <laughs> and sometimes I realize their problems are a lot bigger than mine. And the things that I thought were so big and were lead leading me to have bad attitudes and leading me to be uh, a grumbler and a complainer and, and whatever else, I realize that those things aren't even important. And it improves our relationships. So serve others. Okay, moving quickly. Because we still have eight more to go. But it's okay. We're moving quickly. Let no corrupting talk 
The New International Version translates, No unwholesome words come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is a really, really big relationship killer. No, no corrupting, no unwholesome, no destructive talk, no destructive words should ever come out of our mouths. Even those things we do in fun are so often so dangerous and so destructive. We've got to be careful with what we say. Words like, you know, when, when a wife tells a husband, you pig. When a husband tells his wife, you're fat. When parents tell their kids, you're no good or you're lazy. Those are awful, destructive things to do. They may not break bones like the old saying says, but they do destroy and kill spirits. Words like that are terribly damaging. They hurt, they humiliate, they destroy, they deceive, they put down, they belittle, and they have no place on the lips of a follower of Jesus Christ. No place on the lips of a godly man or a godly woman. If they are part of your speech, Get rid of it. Instead, verse 29, instead of using words that destroy, use words that build, use words that encourage. Be a builder. Build others up. I notice it says here, as fits the occasion, or as it says in the NIV, according to their needs. What that tells me is, is that we're, it, it, we're giving thought. We're, we're noticing and we're looking at our wife or our husband or our kids or our friends, and we're saying, what is it that they need to hear? How many of you are over-encouraged? You know, nobody in the first service raised their hand either. And I can see you folks at home, nobody at home is raising their hands. None of us are over-encouraged. Instead of words that destroy, we need to be using words that build. Everybody around you needs it. Let's give it to them. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. May I summarize some of that? No bad attitudes. Our attitudes may not be seen, they may not be heard, but they provide fertile soil for all these other sins to grow. So we must not allow ourselves to harbor those attitudes and those thoughts of bitterness or vengeance or anger or malice. Get rid of those things out of our attitudes. They're clearly in opposition to loving someone and they are detrimental to building good relationships. But a lot of us like to just play with all that stuff in our mind and we think it doesn't matter because nobody ever sees it, nobody ever hears it, but it does affect us. Control what we think. Along with that, mixed in with all those attitudes, there were two actions that I separated out because they need to be separate in our list. He says there to not only put away those attitudes, but to put away, here's one action, clamor. You say, what in the world is clamor? Well, clamor is noise, but it's more specific. In the Greek, the word here is referring to angry shouting. In other words, if you're in the habit of having your little discussions as loud shouting matches, if you're in the habit of dealing with 
disagreements as arguments and fights. This is saying, stop being contentious and stop fighting. Again, it doesn't have a place in good relationships. Good relationships have plenty of disagreement, but they don't have fights, clamor, angry shouting. Along with that, he says, the other action to put away is slander. No slander. Don't speak badly and poorly of others. Don't go around running other people down. That is a destructive sin. Sadly, many people not only talk badly of others, they speak ill of those that they claim to love and they claim to care about. And so while they're away from their husband, they're away from their wife, they will with their friends just go on and on a rail against how stupid their husband is, how, you know, what an airhead their wife is, blah, 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 and everybody laughs and then they all join in with their stories. That is slander. It is a destructive thing. Technology today makes it easy to put such foolishness where it spreads even farther, hurts deeper, and lasts longer than ever before. If you're going to use social media, use it with care and never, ever slander. And if you have a habit of doing that or even occasional occurrence of doing that, I might suggest you pull the plug on social media. You don't need that temptation in your life. And it's a destructive thing. Lastly, we're to the end of the list. Three positive, wonderful, beautiful qualities to put on with our new self. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind. Go out of your way to do nice things for others. Unexpected random kindnesses and the kindnesses in the dailies. The little daily things of serving and helping. I read one cynic who said, when a man opens the car door for his wife, you can count on one of two things being true. Either it's a new car or a new wife. Well, prove the cynic wrong. We ought to be exhibiting kindness all the time to those we love and those we care about. Lavish kindness upon one another. Be tender-hearted. Genuinely care for others. Genuinely listen to them and be sympathetic. When we're throwing our own pity parties, we have a hard time being sympathetic for other people. <laughs> we especially have a hard time being sympathetic for people and the thing they're complaining about is something we wish we had that problem. You know, my car, my gas is so expensive. I wish I had a car. It's hard to be sympathetic when you're envious, but he calls us here to be tender-hearted. In every situation, when someone is expressing something, we need to try to put ourselves in their shoes and genuinely be concerned about their hurts, their needs. Tender-hearted. Lastly, be forgiving. He says, forgive like Christ forgives us. We just celebrated here this morning the communion We're forgiven at the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. And how are we forgiven? We are forgiven lavishly, completely, continually. How many times does somebody offend you the third, fourth, tenth, fifteenth time and you get ticked? It happens a lot. 
How many times do you go to God saying, well, God, here I am again. I know this is like the 4,757th time that I've done this today. And I'm having to come again and confess. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we have that heart towards those in our lives. Wow. What a list. How many of you got a hundred? Yeah. Nobody in the first service either. <laughs> I was going to say, if you got a hundred, we can verify that with your family and friends. You're preaching next week. And I'm sitting right there. So first thing, what do we do with this list? When you recognize your failure, it's welcome to the club. Let me suggest three things as we close. Number one, what do we do with this list? Confess. Look at this list honestly. Look at this list carefully. And today, say there's no more excuses. There's no more saying, well, that's just how I am. Doesn't cut it. There's no more saying, well, it's, I wouldn't do that, but my husband, <laughs> I wouldn't do that, but my, you know, my wife, my kids, my, I was raised that way. <laughs> no more excuses. Let's call it what it is. If God says on this list, don't do something and you, and you do it, it is sin. Let's be honest and let's confess it. If God says do it, and you say, but that's hard, and you don't do it, it is, yeah. Let's be honest, and let's confess it, and let's repent of it. Let's say, God, I need to change this. Then what do we do? We aim to put these things into practice. What does he say here in the text? We say, I'm no longer going to live like that, no longer going to live airheaded. I'm going to put on the new self. Now, how long is that going to work for you? Not very long if you try to do it by yourself. And that's where you need to ask the Lord's help every day. One more thing I'm going to say. This is a list of 16 things. How many of you can focus on 16 things at once? There probably are some of you. But my guess is most of you not so much. If you're like me, I can't focus on more than like two or three things at once. And that not so well. So what do you do? Take three on here that you most need help with. And may I suggest you do something? Write them down. Matter of fact, right now, double dog dare you. Write them down. There's an envelope in front of you in the pew that you're never supposed to write on. You're supposed to put on, you know, um, offering in there. But the kids draw on them all the time. As adults, we know we're not supposed to do that. You can take that. You can write on there because you can make that your offering to God. You say, God, you say I'm supposed to take off the, these bad things, the old way of living. I'm supposed to put on the new. And this matters because this, this matters because it's foolish to live this way. And it matters because relationships count on this. And relationships are at the core of the mission. And so God is my offering to you. I'm coming and saying, Lord, I want to be changed. I want to change. Here's the areas I need. I think I need change in most. If I'm missing some, tell me. 
And you take that and you keep it this week in your Bible. You stick it on your dash as you drive, you whatever. And so you keep it in front of you. And every time you look at that, you say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of stuff here. This is convicting stuff. We just got started. There's more coming next week. (laughs) So we need to start now. I've gone long, Father, but I've gone long because this is so important. It matters how we live at home with our husband, with our wife. It matters how we treat our children. It matters how we treat our parents. It matters how we treat our brother and sister here in church. It matters how we treat our next door neighbor and how we treat the guy at work and that kid in class next to us. It matters how we treat our neighbors. So Lord, may you change us so that our relationships change. So that we grow up in Christ and we make disciples and followers of Christ. We're effective in that. And so that Jesus is honored. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen.